When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. In the heydays of Las Vegas and the nightclub era, nobody defined cool quite like the Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop were more than entertainers. They were members of showbiz royalty who lived fast, partied hard, and left a lasting mark on American culture. 60 years ago today, the film Ocean's Eleven debuted in theaters, showcasing both the Rat Pack itself and the romanticized modern version of Vegas. Here to commemorate that anniversary and tell us about the Rat Pack's enduring impact on uh, is, is someone who is a leading authority of the show of biz. And he... <laughs> what was that? <laughs> on the business of show. Okay. <laughs> Here to commemorate... Uh, the last anniversary. I was hoping I could get by that and nobody would notice it, but obviously not. Here to commemorate that anniversary and tell us all about the Rat Pack's enduring uh, impact is a leading authority of all the business of show. He's a respected film and TV journalist and the author of the best-selling books, The Life and Times of Mickey Rooney from Simon and Schuster, Beyond Columbo, The Life and Times of Peter Falk, and the Dr. Feelgood Casebook, uh, currently being developed as a Warner Brothers HBO Max television series by Tom Fontana and podcast guest Larry uh, Barry Levinson. He's also the author of uh, an upcoming Simon and Schuster published biography of Jerry Lewis. And if that wasn't enough uh, to intrigue you people, he's met Mae West, visited Bud Abbott, and stayed at the home of Mo Howard. Do tell. Now, uh, please welcome to the show the author of a terrific new book, Deconstructing the Rat Pack, The Mob and the Summit, Rick Lertzman. Hi, <laughs> Hi Gilbert, how are Rick. you? Hi, Frank. 
And, and Rick, Rick he, Barry Levinson's not going to like the fact that you called him Larry Bevinson. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the shit list. And and uh, I I should tell you, Rick, uh, that you could also be hired out for parties as a <laughs> Rob, Rob Reiner lookalike. <laughs> he does look a little like Rob Reiner. <laughs> well, that's, that's fine. You call me Meathead. He's handsomer than Rob Reiner. Welcome, Rick. Well, now, thanks, now, Frank. On this podcast, we have actually had people say kind words about Jerry Lewis, but <laughs> never one has had a kind word on Joey Bishop. Not a one. I, through my whole experience, it's almost unanimous. I've never heard kind words about Joey Bishop. On the day he died, one of my good friends, a great writer named Rocky Kalish, started sending me Joey Bishop death stories. And I said, too soon. And he didn't care. And everybody oh, had no. these great Joey Bishop dead jokes. And, and that's, that's, how, that's how beloved he was. And, and I, according to the book, uh, everyone says, you know, Sinatra and the mob. But Joey Bishop had bigger mob connections. Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, Joey Joey was, he started in the El Dumpo in Cleveland, Ohio, and he worked for guys like Mo Dalitz and, and, and a lot of the guys who went to Vegas who were from the Cleveland mob. So Joey, Joey was one of the guys. He was a street guy from South Philly. Uh, he was involved. He played golf. Mickey Cohn was his golfing buddy in, in Los Angeles. Uh, he was the only one to testify at a murder trial for Mickey Mickey Cohn. Mur Mickey murdered a guy at Rondelli's restaurant in Sherman Oaks. Right. And right. Joey was the only one who testified at the trial, the murder trial for Mickey Cohn. The, the, the murder that supposedly inspired Puzo to write a scene for The Godfather. The scene with the eye, with the shot out in the restaurant, that was at Rondelli's. And if you ever see pictures of it, it's very, very similar. Amazing. And, um, oh, what was it? Jesus. Oh, just go ahead. <laughs> well, well, the, the, other thing, the other thing that's fascinating, where's that barking, where's that barking dog coming from? That is from? Bailey, my dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, Bailey. Uh, the other thing that's fascinating, too, and Gilbert, Gilbert mentions the mob, Bill Persky told us a story, too, that you corroborate in the book, which was the story of, of, uh, of the night a club was held up. I can't remember this, the club. And Joey was on stage. When, when, a, when a woman customer got a crack in the jaw, it's a, it's a terrifying story. Yeah, and Joey was there, stayed calm, you know, because Joey knew the mob clubs. And, and he never, Joey one time, Joey was at a club when Frank Costello, Frank Joey told me the story, took a knife and stuck it in someone's hand. Joey watched it, didn't say a word. Police came to him the next day. He never mentioned it. He said, I never saw anything. And that's what they loved about Joey. He kept his nose clean. And, you know, everybody worked for the mob in those days. If you worked in the clubs, if you worked at, uh, at Copacabana, you worked for Jack and Trotter or, or Julie Podell. Uh, it was a Frank Costello club. If you worked at, at Shea Paris in Chicago, if you worked at any of the clubs, they were all mobbed up. But Joey, the difference was Joey were, was friends with a lot of these guys. And, and one time, Joey Bishop 
was on stage and he started doing jokes about a guy named, I think, Game Boy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> right. And they were about ready to drag him into the men's room and kill him. And and of all people, Bar Barnard Gorsi, Louis Dombrowski, the ca the candy shop owner from the Bowery Boys, uh, said to, uh, to intervened and said, uh "Oh, he he doesn't know." <laughs> well, all, all four foot five of Bernard Gorsi uh, did it, you know. And Bernard Gorsi was. Back in Abbey's Iris Rose, back in the twenties, he he was even in the uh -huh. Great Dictator, but he was there with Joey. Saved Joey's life, did he? How did he manage that? You know, Bernard. You know, the, these guys watched out for Joey. Joey, you know, Joe. Mm -hmm. They knew about Game Boy, and you know, they they watched out for Joey because Joey was one of them. I love these nicknames. Tell tell us too. We'll, we'll talk a lot more about the mob, but tell us. You were telling me on the phone that. One of the first people you broached and uh, uh, about this, or w w one of the first times you you you, uh, you broached this, I should say, uh, hey, I might be interested in writing a book about Joey Bishop, was was with whom? I, I knew Rocky Kalish, who was a good friend of Sheldon Leonard's. And, and I right. wanted to meet Sheldon Leonard because he's one of the great guys, great producers. You know, had that tough look, but he was a graduate of Syracuse University. Hardly what he looked like. Oh. Always, always played a mafioso. Yeah, mafioso, or, or, or you <laughs> right. know, he always played uh, the tough guy. He did it with Jack Benny. Go oh, your money or right. your life. That was Sheldon Leonard. Sheldon, uh, and we went to lunch, and I really wanted to meet Frank Sinatra. And I said, could I meet? Because, you know, he still was friends with him. He was in Guys and Dolls with him, and he knew him. Sure. And he said, no, 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 you can't get to Frank. I said, how about Joey Bishop? And he, he gave me this look on his face. He goes, what the hell would you want to meet that Meshugana? <laughs> Hilarious. And, and, and he had he had hired he had hired a kid named Gary Marshall, and Gary Mar sure. Gary Marshall and his partner his name was Frank Fred Freeman, and Sheldon put Gary Marshall in because uh, Gary and, and Fred had written jokes for for Joy Bishop on the Jack Parr show, so he brought them in to kind of. Right, be with Joey because they brought in Harry Crane and Milt Josephsberg, all these great writers. But, great names. And Gary and Gary was there. And Fred, and the first thing Fred Freeman got in an argument with Joey. He said, "Joey, it's my prerogative to do that." And he was he always had called Fred Freeman college boy. So he grabbed Fred Freeman and slugged him in the mouth and said, "Don't you ever fucking use that word prerogative with me?" Because he thought he was calling him some kind of name. He didn't know what the word prerogative. He had no meant. idea what the word prerogative meant. <laughs> so he thought, "Oh, jeez." So, so Fred Freeman packed his bags up and said, "I'm not doing this, Gary. I'm going back to New York." So Fred left. And Gary said, "This is my chance, my school, to learn from Sheldon Leonard and be part of it." He made a deal with Sheldon Leonard. He he teamed up with a guy named uh, Jerry um, Jerry, Jerry Belson. Jerry Belson, and he eventually wrote Dick Van Dyke. But part of the deal, yeah. right, Dick Van Dyke, is he had to stay with Joey. How about that? And here's a story I brought up a couple of times on the podcast. Uh, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin were out getting drunk together, and they were being really loud. And uh, and, and next door, at the table next door, was a guy who was the chairman 
of Hunt's Foods. <laughs> and he asked them if they could hold it down a little. Do you know this story, Rick? No, I don't. Oh, Jesus. And then they said, uh, Dean and Frank just beat the shit out of this guy. <laughs> and he, he even crashed through a glass table. So he wound up in horrible shape. And he never pressed charges. Well, you know, Frank, I always heard, was really strong with a lot of guys behind him. Guys like Jilly Rizzo and, and other guys like Jilly Rizzo. And I, mm-hmm. I had a cousin named Carl Cohn, and he was the president of the Sands Hotel. Six foot five, he was an ex-Golden Glove boxer. I mean, he looked like, you know, one of those, uh, like Mike Mazursky or one of those guys, you know, big. Tub. Oh, yeah, yes. Mike, Mike Mazursky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike Mazursky. <laughs> so he, yeah. he, he just, you, you couldn't budge this guy. And he was, he was a smart, savvy business person, but he was a mobbed up guy. So Joey was in, this is in 67. So Frank is in the, in coming out, and he's drunk. He's throwing chips around. He's harassing dealers. He's pushing people around. They call Carl in. Carl comes down to the casino floor, and Carl said, you know, Frank, cool it. Just cool it. Get some coffee. Take him back to the room, Joey. And, Fra- and this is the time Howard Hughes is taking over the hotel. So, so Joey, Frank doesn't listen to him. Frank takes a, 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 a punch at Carl, and Carl catches it in his hand. And he goes, Joey, I mean, Frank, don't. So and he turns his head, and Frank catches him square in the jaw. And it's like, it's like a movie. He didn't budge. He just looked at him, pulled back, and hit Frank square in the mouth. Caps flew all over. A couple of his teeth flew all over. And that was the end of Frank at the Sands Hotel. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Now, te- Carl Cohen was your cousin, as you said, Carl- and, and a very and a very interesting character. Carl was Carl was, you know these these were Jewish mobsters, so they were yeah. they were more business like than we would imagine. They were like you know the, Carl was like could put his arm around you and schmooze you, and every, the gamblers loved him. Everybody loved Carl, and he was there for he was there at the El Rancho. Then he went to Desert Inn. And he moved, and he moved with Jack and Trotter to the uh, Copa room in in uh, at the Sands. And he was there, and he stayed actually with Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes kept him on after uh, he bought it out from the mob. Wow, who who else were at these lunches? By the way, you told me, and I was telling Gilbert on the phone. Some of you attended over the years because your research and your your uh, your your uh, your existence in this world goes way back to the seventies. And you've been you've been having lunches with showbiz people for for decades. And who who was at some of these lunches in addition to the Sheldon Leonard's of the world? Well, there, I used to go to a lunch of the of the of, the, of these Alta Cocker Jewish writers and performers, and it was, it was <laughs> and it was uh, Donna Cantor filmed it. It was a, a documentary called Lunch, and it was every, yeah. it was every week for twenty five years. And it was guys like uh, Sid Caesar was at a lot of lunches, and Mel Brooks and and Carl Reiner. And uh, Arthur Hiller and Monty Hall, and wow. uh, Ir- Irv-, Irv Brecker, who was like one. Of the- Irv Brecker wrote for the Marx oh, Brothers. Irv Bre- so did Hal Can- and Hal Cantor was there. Hal Cantor and uh, uh, Rocky Kalish, and it was a group. And, and you couldn't, you just would be a fly in the wall and listen to these stories. Hal Cantor told the story when he met Jolson, you know, sitting in the backyard naked, and he was right. He was, I think, he was writing for the Ed Wynn Show, and you know, they had some great stories you just would listen to. And it takes you back to that part of show business that I was fascinated with. 
Yeah. Tell, tell Gilbert what you told me about Caesar, your observation about Caesar. Sid would never talk as Sid Caesar. He would sit at a table, and if, if uh, Mel was there or Carl, they'd say, they'd answer it as the professor, and he would answer it in this German dialect, never as Sid Caesar. As Sid Caesar, it was the most introverted guy that I've ever seen. But the minute he got into character, it was a different person. There you go, Gil, corroborating what we've heard. I I had heard that also about Peter Sellers, that if he wasn't in character, he didn't exist. Uh, You know, I I, I interviewed Blake Edwards years ago, and Blake Edwards said that Peter used to have a conversation with his mother on the set, except his mother was dead. So Peter used to have this conversation before he went to film, and Blake said he would have a conversation with his mother. So I think you've wow. heard so many stories about Peter Sellers, and, and uh, each one is more twisted. So you're sitting there with Mel and Carl and and uh, and uh, and the, the you know the great uh, Hal Cantor and and Milt Josephsberg, all these all these luminary. Oh, yeah. you, you told me Arnie, our friend Arnie Cogan would show up, and Pat McCormick, uh, 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 an, uh, another guy we love. You did you did you ever were you were you able to turn on a tape recorder? Or was that verboten? I, I actually did turn it on a couple times, and uh, uh, Gary Owens was there, who was such a great Gary guy. Gary Owens. We, these were like <laughs> Yarmy Armies. Yarmy's Army get together. Yeah, uh, Gary, Gary was such a great guy. And Gary told great Sinatra stories. He was one of the best raconteurs of that. Now, um, great stuff. When they did that TV movie about the Rat Pack with Ray Liotta and uh, Don Cheadle and. Uh, Oh, Joe, oh, Joe Montaigne. Joe Montaigne, Joe Montaigne. Right here. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I remember watching the scene where, like, you know, they pick up Sammy and go, oh, we'd like to thank the NSACP for giving this award. And they go, zoom in for a close-up on Don Cheadle's face <laughs> with te- <laughs> tears welling up in his eyes like he just can't take the cruelty. You know, you know the funny thing is, those scenes, like you thought it was ad lib from, from Dean or something like that, a guy named Don Sherman, who was, his daughter is Amy Sherman Palladino, who wrote Mrs. Oh, yeah. right, Mrs. Sure. Maisel. Sure. Don, Don Sherman used to write all of Joey's material. And Don and Don wrote the whole Rat Pack act. I mean, it was so tight. You would see the 8 o'clock show, you'd go to 12, you'd think you'd see this more loose ad lib. It was the same show. It was the same show every night. There was like very little change because it was it was very it wasn't a, it wasn't an ad lib act. It was Don Sherman wrote it. Uh, and and I think they they had uh, Gary Marshall and, and Fred Freeman had also contributed some dialogue to it. Great. And so Amy, you, Amy Sherman Palladino hired you, Gilbert. He, Gilbert's yes. in the pilot of Mrs. Maisel. Yes. <laughs> a, sh- a show that is, I believe, a Valentine to her dad. It, 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 to, to, it, it, to, to that world because Don was a friend of, of Lenny Bruce, and Don was a friend of, yeah. of a lot of the comics. And Don was around till like uh, about two three years ago, and you can always get great stories from Don Sherman. Uh, wish we knew about him. I'd like to. Pu- I'm going to put in a little self promotion here. Luke Kirby, who plays uh, uh, Lenny Bruce on that show, is a listener to this very podcast, which he told the New York Times. Great job. He does a great job. Yeah, great and job. He, so shout out does, to Luke Kirby. Yeah, terrific 
Lenny yeah. Bruce imitation. Yeah. We, we we wish we'd we'd gotten Don Sherman and said, you know, you gotta you gotta help us. Uh, you gotta tell us, Rick, who's still around, who we can who we can talk to from those uh, from those legendary lunches. I dig up all the Alta Cockers from that era. You know, it's. <laughs> did, did you meet Harry Crane? Was Harry Crane? No, gone? I never. Harry Crane was gone. I never met Harry Crane. Um, another I met, guy whose reputation I, precedes. You him. know, a guy named Irv Brecker who who wrote the life of Riley, sure. and he wrote he actually sure. wrote. The Life of Riley for Groucho, he told us. He actually had written it. Groucho was so bad in the part that he, he uh, replaced him with uh, on radio with uh, um, William Bendix. And then uh, William Bendix eventually took it over again from Gleason on television. Yeah, yeah. I th- our and- mutual friend uh, Drew Friedman, I think, met Irv Brecker a bunch of times. Irv is a great guy, funny and- guy. Yeah. And- and and they actually filmed an episode. I don't know that it was ever shown, but they filmed an episode with Lon Chaney Jr. as <laughs> Riley. <laughs> That's just terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, okay, so go ahead. Yes, Rick, it was go the ahead. Mice and Men episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so you tell Sheldon Leonard at one of these legendary lunches that you're that you're hatching a book about Joe, uh, about the Rat Pack, mostly uh, mostly told as as Joey's story, which we should say the the book the book definitely takes that angle, takes that approach. I eventually got to meet Joey. He lived in he lived in this not a great condo, but a condo on in a uh, gated community called Lido Isle in Newport Beach, and behind it he had a boat at that time called Son of a Gun Two. And uh, it was like, it was like one of the candles like my grandmother had. You had that older person smell in there, that it was it was kind of uh, kind of stale. And yep. jo- and Joey had on the third floor of his of his condo a, a, a study, and it was a shrine to the Rat Pack. And it was pictures of him because he was the MC for the inaugural gala, Joey Bishop. So that was uh-huh. that was a high point of his life. So he would I walk in, he goes. I'm not going to fucking talk about anything about the fucking Rat Pack. No Rat Pack. No Rat You know, any of that. He had that South Philly uh, toughness. And eventually, that's all he wanted to talk about was his... The, <laughs> I, I, so bizarre. I'm the glue of the wheel. I'm the spoke. And, you know, it, going through my mind, I'm going, yeah, yeah, you're the spoke. It's Frank, Dean, and Sammy, and you're the spoke of the wheel. But, you know, he was he was funny in his own way. He was He was got that street kind of... Smart ass uh, attitude, um, but you know he was he was very bitter, really a bitter guy. And and there was a a really disturbing story about how his mother got a scar on her face. Oh yeah, and, and uh, as a Jew, they attacked her. In uh, she he, they, they they were in Brooklyn at the time. Eventually, they eventually moved to uh, South Philly. And uh, they attacked her, and uh, she had a scar for the rest of her life. Jesus. Jeez. How did you know that, Gilbert? I didn't even see that in the book. Yeah. Uh, well, if it has to do with Jews. I don't give a fuck about the Rat Pack. But I, thought, I saw jo- the word Jew here. <laughs> Joey, sa- safe to say that Joey burned a lot of bridges, and, and, and his career was effectively over by the time he reached his 50s, his early 50s. His, he, was, he was 50, or he was, it was 1970, the Joey Bishop show had just ended on ABC, and that mm-hmm. basically was the end of Joey. Joey had um, one more renaissance 
uh, Mickey Rooney was appearing on Sugar Babies on Broadway. And, Mick, oh, and Mickey yeah. had to go to do a film called Bill for Barry Morrow and, and, uh, on television. And, Mil- and so they needed a replacement. And we interviewed Terry Allen Kramer, who produced it, with Donald Trump, was one of the backers of Sugar Babies. Wow. And we interviewed Donald Trump for that, too. And so, so Mickey, so uh, they, they brought in Joey Bishop. The problem is Mickey could sing, could dance, came from burlesque, new shtick. Joey couldn't sing. He couldn't dance. Uh, you know, he had he, he couldn't really do much of anything. So they went from a sellout performances in Sugar Babies to half-filled, quarter-filled. Eventually, Joey had a three-month contract, was tossed out, and they brought in Rip Taylor to replace him. Wow. And so Joey ended up, as you say in the book, opening for people like Lola Falana, and his career had kind of come full circle because that's how he started, was opening for he, people yeah, he was in clubs. A, he wasn't a headliner. He was, Joey was an opening act because what Frank liked about him is he didn't suck the air out. He, you know, you know, he wouldn't bring a Buddy Hackett or a Don Rickles to open for him because Frank wanted it just warm enough for him to come out and do a show. And then he, that's where he had... Uh, um, uh, Pat Henry and people like that, and, and Tom Dreesen. Tom Dreesen did yeah. it for years. Yeah, and, and so you know he had people that were just good enough. And Joni was a journeyman comic at, at best. And and there was um, I I it's funny because you said there was that one guy who wrote all of the Rat Pack stuff. And Don Sherman. I, yeah, Don Sherman. And I had always heard it must have been started by Joey Bishop. Joey Bishop, I think, used to say that he wrote all the bits they did. Yeah, Joey Joey always seemed he was on Jack Power, and he was always glib and had ad libs. Of course, down by his side, he had Gary Gary Marshall and Frank Freeman, Fred Freeman, or or Don Sherman. So he Joey always had the writers, but you know, a lot of the great comics, Red Skelton, a lot of them, did never admitted that they had writers. They, they it's like. It was off the top of their head that they were so brilliant that they didn't need writers, and Joey was one of them. So Joey did a, a game show in the in the late fifties. He did that, and he never admitted that he had writers. In fact, when when he did his talk show, where Johnny had like twelve or fourteen writers in the in the mid in the late sixties, Joey had two or three. You know, reading the book, he has contempt for a lot of people, but he really had contempt for his writers. <laughs> I mean, you, read, you read about you know you read about how Gleason hated his writers yeah. and 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 other people. Uh, jo- Joey really is right right up there. Yeah, I, no, I mean Joey. Um, Joey had a writer named Milt Josephsberg who was this guy had a written he had, he, and he had written for 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 Jack Benny for years and Jack loved him and and he was a smaller guy you know you know nice quiet guy and and Milt was writing for Joey. One of the episodes, Joey was his, Joey played himself and his twin cousin, his, his, his duplicate cousin. And during the week, Joey's getting madder and madder and madder. Finally, he goes up to Josephsburg and starts shaking him and, and really pushing him around. And he goes, why did you write all this fucking stuff for my cousin? And, <laughs> and, and, and really, Gary Marshall, everybody had to pull him off of Josephsburg, who was Shaken up because you know he's he's used to Jack Benny. Billy Billy Persky and and Sam Denoff also wrote for Joey's because nice. they were in that family. They were in that that Danny Thomas Sheldon Leonard uh, 
family, and they got they got stuck writing a couple episodes of the Bishop Show. Part, and, yeah. and I, Persky doesn't have a damn nice thing to say about <laughs> Joey Bishop. <laughs> Not a nice word. And and I heard there's this famous story with Hope and Crosby, where they're watching the writers are watching one of their films and say, "Oh, wait a minute, I." Th- think they used one of our lines. And that was supposed to show that they, uh, Hope and Crosby, would think on their feet. And that's what was... But then I heard they didn't use the movie writers' lines because they had their own writers. They had their own personal. Larry Gelbart was a writer for for, uh, for Bob yeah. Hope. I mean, Bob Hope had, had some of the best writers over the years. And... Uh, he made sure he, you know, he had his. He kept his big catalog of jokes, and and uh, there's still catalog somewhere. I'll say in defense of Hope, he didn't. He didn't really hide the fact that he had writers, and he didn't. He didn't have open contempt for them, the the, the way the way someone like Leeson did, or 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 or, or Red uh, Skelton, yeah, Red, or Red, Skelton, yeah, Skelton. Uh, uh, Sherwood Schwartz one time told me the nightmare of working for a Red Skelton of. You know, how, how they just, they really did not like the writers. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. This is this is neither here nor there, but speaking of people that we've never heard a kind word about, what do you know about Danny Kay? Oh, yes. <laughs> I I knew, I knew uh, Harvey Corman and, and Jamie Farr, who worked as the, uh, they are part of the. <laughs> yeah, we heard Jamie's version, yes. yes. <laughs> they, they were part of the ensemble cast. And I did a commercial with Jamie and with with Harvey Corbin, and they the stories about Danny Kay. He would all week he'd work, and if he heard your line score on the night of the actual filming, he'd make sure he'd step on your lines. He'd do anything so you didn't get the laugh. Of course, he yeah. He, Bernie Coppell told us that too. He, he destroyed his own show, but you know that's you know that's Danny Kay. Yeah. So you set out to write this book. Uh, Sheldon Leonard tells you you're crazy, but you find your way to Joey Bishop. Did you tell Joey at any point that he was going to be the focus of this Rat Pack book? Or did that only that only dawn on you later, that that's where you were going to Yeah, take it? it only dawned on me later. I just wanted to meet Joey, uh, interview him. Mm-hmm. I did a couple of magazine pieces. But, you know, I, I, there's a lot of people, uh, other journalists who would go have the same experience. Michael Starr, who writes for the New York Post, uh, wrote a book on Joey, and he had the same experience going, you know, I talked to Michael. Same experience going to his house. Ed Bark, a writer down in, in uh, Dallas. Everybody had the same experience going to Joey and and visiting him. You know, the, Joey was bitter, bitter, bitter. You know, he was the he was the guy. Every he's forgotten. You know, they when they made the Rat Pack movie on HBO, we were talking about earlier. Joey yeah, was the, Sl- our friend Bobby Slayton. Yeah, and I talked to Bobby, and and you know, er, Joey was not consulted, and he was angry about it. Uh, you know, they didn't. They never asked him. They didn't even ask him to to the premiere. Bobby Slayton actually asked him, and he refused to go because they they just had forgot about him. He he got on the phone with Bobby and threatened to beat him up or some crazy shit. Bobby <laughs> he must have he must have been eighty years old. Bobby Bobby was they were both doing a radio show in in uh, Chicago. That's right. And Bobby was on the radio show, and he didn't know Joey was listening in. And Bobby started saying, "Well, I heard that Joey was quite the ladies' man." You know, he liked the girls. And, you know, and Joey was known as this family man. You know, he's married to Sylvia. And Joey got into this on the radio, was threatening to kill him. And then later, Bobby <laughs> called up and apologized and 
said he made amends yeah. with Joey. Yeah, I think and, he did. And what is this one you get arguments about? What was Frank Sinatra's upbringing like? Frank, you know, grew up in Hoboken. He was a spoiled... Frank was never the street guy. Frank was a, a spoiled kid, you know, from his mother, Dolly. You know, his father had a bar. His father was a fireman. And, and Frank had, had, you know, was given everything he needed to, to really... Uh, he was never the tough street kid that Joey was. You know, Joey was a tough street kid. Frank was... Uh, very driven, very smart. Every every everything I've ever heard about Frank is that he knew business. He was savvy. He had the best advisors around him, and and that and it, in the end, it paid off for Frank because Frank, you know, here's D, here's uh, Sammy who ends up totally broke, and Frank ends up with a, a, you know, an ending end up very successful. Yeah, yeah. What happened? I've heard those stories about Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, penniless. Sammy had sold himself to a lot. He had, he had sold parts of himself off, you know, to pay back. He had taxes. He had, you know, Sammy would go into store. You know, Sammy bought things. He would buy. You, you'd see him at Caesar's Palace. He'd be buying every watch and every ring. And and he had no sense of money, but he had no management to really rein him in. And, you know, you look at him and you look at even Jerry Lewis, you know who who really made a lot of money, but ended up, didn't end up as successful as Dean or as Frank. Yeah, Rooney's another guy that ended up without uh, without any money. Mickey Rooney. I talked to Sean Levy, who directed uh, the Night at the Museum, all of them, and he did mm -hmm. part three. Three mm -hmm. weeks before Mickey died, he was paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars for Night at the Museum part three. When he died three weeks later, he had fifteen thousand dollars in his account and could be Jesus could Christ. not pay for his funeral. How did he blow through to two hundred grand in, in in three weeks? Well, well, he, well, there was some elder abuse and some other strange things going on with Mickey, wasn't there? Yeah, well, yeah, Mickey, Mickey loved Suspected. the act. It wasn't true because I got to know Jan. Oh, no, not true. It wasn't true. Mickey thought it was a great new career that he could get into his elder abuse, and he'd be the representative for elder <laughs> oh, abuse God. at ninety four. Oh my God, in heaven! <laughs> so Mickey we'll had come a, back to Mickey had a ahead. new career. For, Mickey had a new career, elder abuse. You know the. Oh, my God in heaven. We'll come back to Mickey, and we'll come back to Joey. But let's talk about the formation of the Rat Pack, which has a couple of different uh, interesting origin stories. The uh, Rat Pack started in Homely Hills. It was Lauren Bacall mm -hmm. and Humphrey Bogart and David Niven, Mickey Rooney, and Frank sure. Sinatra. And it was a group of loose friends, and they would all go around. and Judy and Sid Luft. Judy and Sid Luft. And and right. they call themselves the Freeloaders Club, I think. He, they did. And, and, and it, uh, Lauren Bacall told James Bacon, the writer, you know, they look like a pack of rats. And Bacon gave them the moniker Rat Pack. So when, when, uh, when Bogart died, it kind of broke apart. And Frank was dating Lauren Bacall. And he, Frank had his own buddies. Frank had, uh, had uh, uh, the writer, uh, Jimmy Van Heusen. He had a, he had a yeah. bunch of his own buddies. It wasn't... Frank, it wasn't Dean and Sammy and Joey. It was he had his own buddies. Frank, Frank, Las Vegas was skewering very old. There, there, the performers were Jimmy Durante and Tony Martin and Sid Charisse, and it really wasn't drawing the gamblers. So Frank was given nine percent of the Sands Hotel by Frank Costello owned it with uh, Mo, with Momo Giancana had a piece of it and Mo Dalitz. So he was given 9% to draw the crowd in. And they had this great 
uh, um, uh, publicist named Al Freeman. And they had seen the Danny Thomas show in 58 do a couple shows, the first two shows of the year, from the Sands Hotel. And their bookings and everything went way up. So Freeman came up with the idea is to really, they, all they were getting were the Los Angeles visitors. And they wanted people from New York and Chicago and Philly and everybody to come to Vegas and make it an adult playground. So they came up with the idea to use Frank as the centerpiece. And Freeman said, "Could you, who would you bring in with you? Well, Frank had watched Louis Prima and Keeley Smith and this guy named Sam Butera, who did this amazing lounge act yeah. at the Sahara. Everybody came down to see it. It was the most loose show. Louis Prima was wild. Keeley Smith was like Cher with this stoic face. And Butera had, had played the sax. And Frank loved that show. And so he said, I want to do a loose show like that. And he had just worked with, with Dean Martin in Some Come Running. And he really wanted to work with Dean. Dean wasn't thrilled because Dean had already had a partner. He didn't want to be partnered up. And he, he liked the, didn't he, want another team. He didn't want a team. But, he, but Frank yeah. said, do it with me. And he really wanted to do, they wanted to work together. Sammy had lost, had been in an accident, had lost an eye. So Frank actually nursed, helped him nurse him back to health. Um, Sammy had to learn his balance again to dance and to get back on stage. And so he wanted to work with those three. Joey was, fell into it because Joey was for Frank's opening act. And then there was a guy named Peter Lawford who Frank hated, hated his guts. And then and Frank had worked with them in the 50s, and I wrote about it in Mickey Rooney. Peter was known as the gossip of MGM. He was like a, uh, he would run around and, and talk to all the starlets and have all, he was, the, he was the gossip coordinator. And he had done it to Mickey with Ava Gardner, and he did the same with Frank. He told the tales about, to Ava Gardner about Frank, and they almost, got, they almost broke up. Frank went after him at a party. So they didn't talk for years, but Frank loved the idea that Peter was now married to Patricia Kennedy, and Frank had the idea he could become, he had done everything else in the business, but being a president maker really intrigued him. So Peter had this script that he was shopping around, this guy named George Clayton Johnson, who had, was a gay... I, I have to stop, stop you about George Clayton Johnson, because uh, not to interrupt you, but Gilbert, George Clayton Johnson wrote some of our favorite Twilight Zone episodes. Oh! Kick like the Can. Kick the Can and A Game of Pool. Yes, with uh, Jack Klugman. Correct. And he, wrote, he wrote Logan's Run as well. But at that time, yes. George, George Clayton Johnson was just a gas station attendant. And George Clayton Johnson in World War II ran a black market unit where they, where they, they did all kind of games and crap. And his idea, he thought of, was to bring back his old unit from World War II and do a Vegas heist. So his script was called Ocean's Eleven. Peter thought he could be the star of it and was shopping around. He had Joe Kennedy's money now, so he was shopping around the script, couldn't sell it, took it to Frank Sinatra, who loved it. So Frank took the script. And what did Frank, what did Frank famously say when they pitched him the script idea? I forgot. What, what, what was the word? Oh, he said, forget the script. Let's do the job. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's pull Let's off pull the, the job. Because it, it, so, <laughs> it was so perfect. The way they have it. So Frank takes it to Jack Warner. Jack Warner loves it. Frank gets the idea, what better than to shoot it in Las Vegas when he's doing this great event? And not only that is, he told Jack Warner, and Jack being the cheap Jew he was, we're going to, (laughs) let's shoot it at the Sands and it will be free. And that's magic words to to (laughs) Jack Warner, free. So they they gave him, 
carte blanche. But of course, they could just do it at the Sands because if you step on the wrong toes in Las Vegas, you know, it's going to be Godfather Part 3, you know. So they, they put in the Sahara and the Desert Inn and the El Rancho. Right. And they put them all, all the, the casinos were included. So it was kumbaya for all the boys in uh, the mob. And the, but the Sands was the centerpiece. So the day they announced that the, the rat, that, that Frank, Dean, and Sammy were going to appear, the Sands had about 240 rooms. They sold 30, they, they had 37,000 requests for a reservation. So they spread it all over Las Vegas. And the, as word built in January, the tickets were $7 a piece. They had two shows, 8 and 12. And so, I mean, they, you couldn't get a ticket. It was, it, and everybody came. Uh, Marilyn Monroe and, and uh, at that time, Arthur Miller and, and Cary Grant. Everybody wanted to be in Las Vegas and be seen. But behind the scenes, they had a guy named Joe Kennedy who wanted to use his Peter Lawford because he did not want his son, John Kennedy, to look like, you know, John and Kennedy and Richard Nixon were nearly the same age. But, it, you know, Nixon was this very stodgy, old, mm -hmm. old school guy. And he wanted his son to be tan and good looking and hip and appeal to a younger generation and have that energy. So he said, what better place than to do it in front of the Rat Pack? So he got, he got uh, 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 Peter Lawford to set it up. That from the stage, Frank would introduce Jack Kennedy for three days in a row at all the shows. And they, 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 the cameras were there. They were all filming it. And they started calling him the Jack Pack, that they were behind the Jack, Jack Kennedy. The Jack oh, Pack. Oh, yeah. And, so, and then also, Kennedy went to his friends, Dalitz and Giancana and everybody, and he goes, I want donations. Because they were all afraid that Vegas can get closed down. So he said, if, if my son becomes president... I guarantee you, you'll never have a problem. Everything will be fine. Just get us the money. And so they put in a million dollars in cash. And Sammy and uh, Peter, they, they went back to Carl Cohn's suite, and there was the million dollars in cash, and they they, they saw it. And it, Your cousin. And it went back with Jack <laughs> Kennedy with a, a, a uh, he had it handcuffed to him as he left this bag and took it back to his father. He was the bag man. Everybody's got an angle, Gilbert. This is this is a fascinating story because the Kennedys want something out of Sinatra. Sinatra wants to be a kingmaker, and he wants the glamour of Camelot because Frank's at a sketchy part of his career at, at this stage of the game. The, the 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 casinos, the mob is all too happy to have a to have a future president who's going to look the other way yeah. on their dirty dealings. And the problem was Joe Kennedy had a stroke. When 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 uh, John became president, and there's Bobby Kennedy as the Attorney General, looking at Sam Giancana, go you giggle like a little girl, and that's one thing you don't do to Sam Giancana is tell him you giggle like a little girl. So there's we could do, yeah, we could do a whole yeah. other episode about what that may have led to, yeah, right. <laughs> or or may not have led to. But if in, if in fact you know uh, Momo and those people did have something to do with with the JFK assassination, which is certainly a theory. Right, it it uh, it connects to this story in the in the sense that that the JFK's assassination is sort of the unofficial end of the Rat Pack in that era. It, it took the wind out of the sails because here was this misogynistic group. You know, you watch Ocean's Eleven, you cringe at some of the of scenes. Of course, you know, ring a ding ding and 
and the way he treats Angie Dickinson and Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, yeah. And you, it's hard to watch now. It's hard to watch, but you, you kind of love it because it's it's it, it's it's of that era. And that era went out when Jack Kennedy was assassinated in November of '63. It's not a great movie either, but it's 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 great to see Vegas. It's great to see that period. Right. It's it's a it's a yeah. it's a fun movie to watch. A lot of great uh, uh, supporting actors in there, and Richard Conte. Caesar Romero. Yes, Caesar. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know if that film had a citrus budget, Rick? <laughs> 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 also, Norman Fell, who Gilbert wouldn't call for years. Uh, yes, I, he yeah. gave me his number, but I was just so intimidated. I thought, what if I call him? And he goes, yeah, yeah, what do you want? Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize that it didn't, it, you know, it burned brightly, the, the, the whole Rat Pack phenomenon, but it didn't last long. It, it lasted, it, you know, it started in, in February, of, 60 years ago, February of, of yeah. 1960. We, we should say that this episode's also in honor of that that anniversary as well as the anniversary of Ocean's Eleven. So it's six it's sixty years ago, and it, it was twenty eight days. They went back in March and filmed uh, the rest of Ocean's Eleven on you know on on mm-hmm. in, in on stages and at Warner Brothers, and then in 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 April they went to the Fountain Blue and did a week or ten days at the Fountain Blue where they did a special with Elvis Presley, where Elvis and Frank kind of. Uh, oh, yeah. Shook hands and buried the hatchet and sang together and you know the passing of the torch and all that. They they did they did the Los Angeles uh, in in the Democratic Convention in nineteen June of nineteen sixty. So they were there. Dean reluctantly because Dean didn't care about Jack Kennedy, didn't care about politics. But Dean was there. Everybody was there. August they had a world premiere in Vegas and did a few gigs. And basically, you know they did they did Ocean's Eleven. Sergeant's Three was the last time they all appeared together the next year. And right. That was it. And then that was it. Kennedy was killed. Kennedy was killed while they were in production for Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yeah, and and, and, the, and the Robin and the Seven Hoods was, you know, Peter was gone. Uh, um, Joey Bishop was gone and replaced by right uh, as Guy Gisborne as by Peter Falk. That's right. That's and right. there was um, that time when uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was married to or living with uh, was that. Uh, Kim Novak. May, oh, May, yeah. May Britt. By this, he point. was with he, he did date Kim Novak, and then he went with May Britt, and and that was during that whole period. And um, they had a call from Joe Kennedy that uh, they didn't want Sammy at the inauguration because he was he was about to marry May Britt, and they stopped him actually from marrying May Britt before the inauguration. He didn't get married until after. Okay, so this is what Gilbert's talking about is dramatized in the Rat Pack HBO movie. Where and most of the movie, most of that storyline is built around that, you know, Ray Liotta's Sinatra throwing a fit because JFK decided not to stay at Sinatra's place. Oh. And they make they make it seem like it's all about Sammy and Mae Britt, it, but it was more complicated than that. It, it, at that time, Frank and... At least that's my recollection Fra- of the movie. Frank and Dean were getting a part of the Calneva Lodge with Sam Giancana from, from Chicago. And there was a lot of, about the licensing, there was a lot of, of Michigasen in the news about all this going on. And, and Joe Kennedy did not want his son to fly to, to Palm Springs to meet with John Kennedy because he had all that baggage. With the, now it was public about the rackets. So Joe Kennedy went to his son-in-law and said, you bring Frank the news that 
you can't fly that that you're going to go to Bing Crosby's house. Well, first place, Bing Crosby was a Republican, and second is that Frank had built this heliport. He had built all these rooms. This was he was going to come to his house, and it was going to be the White House West Coast. And Frank was going to get that honor. That's this is what Frank was building toward. Frank wanted to be that kingmaker. And when Peter made that call, that was the end of Peter Falk because Frank not only slammed the uh, phone. Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford. You mean Peter Lawford? I mean, yeah. And but yeah. Peter, when he yeah. made that call, Peter Lawford dreaded this, and he said, "The next, the next voice you hear," and bam, and that was the end of Peter Lawford. And Frank went out and actually tried to blackball Peter Lawford, and he said, "He's he's not, you know, he can't be used. He's not reliable. He does a lot of drugs. He he did everything, and he gave him insurance problems." And Peter was unhirable wow. for for quite a while. I, I may be remembering that story wrong, uh, the Rat Pack movie, uh, if, if, and I'm just attributing that that uh, you know their their uh, their unease was about Sammy's relationship with with uh, with May Britt. But I I know they were worried about Southern Democrats. Oh yeah, the, perceiving JFK as being uh, okay with the idea of of interracial marriage that that's that was a factor. No, you remembered right because Sammy was not allowed at the inauguration, and right Frank right, right, right. Frank really An- another Shonda yeah Fra- yeah Frank had a choice to whether to to be at the inauguration or to stand up for his friend Sammy, and he made the choice that Sammy he told Sammy that they didn't want him at the inauguration, which which tore at Sammy's heart because here's Sammy who was out as part of the Jack Pack, you know, pushing yeah. him the whole time. And you know, because of his, his pending marriage to May Britt, that killed him. That that really you know tore at Sammy. Tell you another story about Sammy is that Sammy went to swim in the pool at the Sands Hotel during this oh, yeah. whole thing. Oh that's yes, in, that's yes. in the book. And they had a floating crap game at, at there, and so they have all these gamblers who are there. Sammy jumps into the pool, and then someone reported that these guys said, you know, Sammy jumped into the pool. They had to drain the pool. And clean it, and refill it. And Sammy was told, "Don't you ever told by by Carl uh, Cohn never never go in the pool." They call them the good old days, but they really weren't in and, many ways. Can I go ahead, Gil? It's funny that um, Kennedy, who was the good guy in the story, and Nixon, the bad guy. Uh, Nixon invited uh, Sammy Davis to the White House. Yeah, and then Sammy was uh, had brought his gun to the White House, and then showed Nixon his gun, and Sammy was, you know, it, and and of course John Kennedy went to Bing Crosby, who was as Republican as you get. And then somehow Bing winds up replacing Peter Lawford in Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yeah, I'm per- the, uh... I, quite 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 a coincidence, but uh, <laughs> right, the two people replaced. Uh, Joey was replaced by Peter right. Falk as Guy Gisborne. Peter Falk. And Peter Falk. And uh, Sammy was replaced, and and and, uh, and Peter was replaced by Bing Crosby, who uh, was the person that they flew to. So you told us how how uh, uh, Peter fell out with with Frank. How did Joey fall out with Frank? Joey was always remarkable to me because Joey had worked twenty five years. He worked all these bus clubs around the country. He finally hit it big, you know. He and he gets this very swelled head now. He has his own situation comedy, and he gets right. really carried away with himself. So Frank is going through. Frank had his son that was kidnapped in 63 uh, in December, 
Uh, he was going through all this personal turmoil. And in 64, Frank, who owns part of the Kelly Village in the summer, said, Joey, I want you to fill in for me. So when Frank asks you that favor and he's done all this for you, Frank expects you to go, okay, I'll be there one minute, I'll, you know, whatever you want. Joey said, well, I want a plane. I want 50000 I want." And he started giving him all these perks he wanted. And Frank, well, like Gilbert does. <laughs> <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't taking any candy or anything. He just, uh, he, he, he. Uh, <laughs> no Perrier. <laughs> no Perrier. <laughs> but he, 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 uh, he, did, he never saw this. And Frank, someone who told me was with him, his face was red. And that was the end. That was the end of, of Joy Bishop. I mean. Jesus. Almost, you know, they did a Tonight Show later on with Dean and, 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 uh. And Frank came on the Tonight Show once, but they really never reconciled, and Joey was was left out of the Rat Pack. And and there was a guy, an important guy at one point in Frank Sinatra's career. I think his name was Brad Dexter. He uh, he had saved Frank Sinatra from drowning. Is Brad Dexter in the Manchurian Candidate? Uh, I have the guy. Do I have this guy right? Yeah, it yeah. might what, be. Yeah, I know. Where, where, where did he save his life? He he was. In, uh, he, he, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Gilbert. No, he was at the beach, I think, and he started drowning. And this guy jumped into the water and saved him. Right. And Joey sent him a telegram and said, "Dear Frank, I thought you could walk on water." And Joey had hoped. <laughs> Joey had hoped that this would bring him back. Nothing brought Joey back. But I'll tell you a story about Joey. When I went to one time, I went to Joey's house. Joey brought out a check from Frank Sinatra, and it was a blank check from the Sinatra account, and there was nothing on it. It was just signed Frank Sinatra, and he said Frank gave him the check because Frank had heard that Joey was despondent and behind on his taxes, and that he needed money. And this was back in the eighties, and he sent he sent over the check to Joey to uh, help him. Joey didn't need it. Joey actually. Because Ed, he had Ed Hookstrad and had made him a lot of money, didn't need the money, but Joey was really touched by that. So that's the only time I ever heard, you know, Frank wow. making an attempt at, with Joey again. Yeah. I, I stand corrected. He was in uh, he was in Run Silent, Run Deep, and The Magnificent Seven. Brad Dexter. Yeah, and, not, and I not heard to... Brad Dexter, who you think Frank would just owe every breath he has, uh, just turned on uh, Frank Sinatra. Just turned on him. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. you, you just, you don't, you, Frank, someone said if you have Frank as a friend, you didn't need another friend. Because Frank was loyal to a fault, but you just didn't screw with Frank. Can oh. I ask you some questions from listeners, my friend Rick? Absolutely. David, I'm going to fuck up this name. David Waraftig, Waraftig, W-A-R-A-H-A-F-T-I-G. I'm sure it was a combination of things, of course, but what really broke up Dean and Jerry finally? Uh, my late mom's crazy theory was that their wives didn't get along. Um, I could say, <laughs> I'm going to tell you this. It might be w one theory. I'm going to tell you the theory that we're going to have in our book, which is coming up, The Clown That Cried. Oh, I know where you're going. W where oh. am I going? I'm, go I'm going to, Frank, Dean was challenged by Jerry on, the, on a sexuality. He felt... Jerry was coming on to him, and he, he felt very uncomfortable with Jerry showing him so much love and crowding him. And 
there was a, a sexuality question in this as well, a bisexuality question. And, yes, and I've heard that. And there was a challenge to Dean in a, in a lot of ways, and Dean felt very uncomfortable. A, a lot of it was the wives were behind it. Patty was like, did not like Jeannie and didn't like what she, he had left Betty. But um, one of the theories is that there was a, a question that Jerry was, uh, you know, making overtures to Dean in the wrong way that, that Dean felt. Oh, jeez. We, we direct your attention to a, a book by our friend Rupert Holmes called Where the Truth Lies. Really? I didn't which was made into a movie, which is loosely and, based on a Martin and Lewis team. And was that the one with... Um, made into a movie yeah, with Kevin with Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Because, you I know, I, when, yeah, I when you think... Colin, of, Colin Firth, I think. Yeah, when you think of Jerry Lewis, uh, the first person you think of is Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Six degrees of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> so he yeah. thought Jerry Lewis was coming on to him? He thought Jerry Lewis was coming on to him in, in every way possible, and he felt very crowded. Jerry was uh, very needy in a lot of ways, and so there was a lot of questions of people who were very close to them. And this is in our book. I mean, we we, we don't know for certain, but we know that it played a factor in in the breakup, in the eventual breakup. I mean, there, there was actually there's a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. Fascinating. Well, Jerry's Jerry, you you know, you read that Jerry's uh, Titanic ego had something to do with it. Was, was it a story about Dean cut out of a picture on a magazine cover? You know, Jerry cut Dean out of everything from from uh, scripts and, and and cutting down his part. See, even Jerry singing more in films. Jerry wanted more of a singing part in the films. So Jerry, right. Jerry, you know, in in so many ways, you know, was a uh, a megalomaniac, an egomaniac that was beyond control. Well, we'll have you back when you do the Jerry Lewis book. <laughs> There's a, 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 obviously a lot more bodies to bury. And and you were a guest at Mo Howard's house. Yes, my my uh, my great uncle Carl Lertzman had a store, and it was near uh, Los Feliz, where Larry Fine lived. And he would extend credit. All the Larry Fine was always in hock. He was a gambler. So my my so my 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 uncle my uncle like Gilbert. my uncle used to let it slide, and they they let by doing that, any guests from Cleveland would come in and they'd be treated like a god at Gower Gulch where they shot the shorts with Jules White. So you know he, he made my uncle a big man bringing people in. So my father comes in. In 1949, and he thinks he said, I mean, "You're going to be big stars." And they take him up to Gower Gulch. My father goes, "My God, it's these guys who do shorts. You know, they're they're five, four foot eleven, and 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 my father was like, you know, this this is the stars I'm going to meet, the Three Stooges." So I heard the story, <laughs> and I was thrilled to death. So I called my great uncle Carl Lertzman, and he set it up that I got to stay with Mo and Helen Howard. They lived in North Hollywood. And I stayed there for five days, and I got to know Mo. And I had a million questions because I was a huge Stooges fan. So Mo took me up, and Mo drove this gigantic Fleetwood Brougham Cadillac. And Mo was maybe four foot ten, if that, at the time. I mean, without, <laughs> and he didn't have a any assist. You see him driving, and he's looking over the wheel. 
And so we go up to the motion picture home, and Larry finds there, and Larry's in a wheelchair. And they they get into an argument, and Mo actually calls him. He says, they're arguing about some point they were talking about. And he goes, you're just a knucklehead, a lame, a nincompoop. And I, <laughs> I, I wish I had a cell phone. So... <laughs> At the same so, time, at the, at the same time that Larry's there, Bud Abbott is in the motion picture home. This is in '73, and he, he he had a stroke, and he was getting physical rehab. And Mo said, "Let's go pay a visit to Bud Abbott." And I'm going, "Oh, of course! I mean, this this is, you know, it's heaven to me." So I went up, and there was Bud Abbott, and this is '73. Uh, He's about 75 years old, uh, very frail. And I got a chance to talk to Bud Abbott. Mo would would stood behind, and he was in awe of Bud Abbott. I mean, he looked at Bud Abbott like he was a god. I mean, and I said, well, why why do you, when I was driving back, why do you think, you know, why do you treat him? Because the Three Stooges are as great as Abbott and Costello. He goes, no, no, boy, chick, no, 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 no. They were making a, they were making a million dollars a year. We made twenty five thousand a year. He goes, no, 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 no. And he, he's the greatest straight man, bar none. He said, you know, it, he was the best. And Mo actually told me that uh, I asked him if uh, uh, when they were playing Atlantic City, if um, Curly was ever. He said, no, no, Curly. Uh, he was. I asked him if he was copied, and he said, I said, who's Curly's? Um, Person he goes Hugh Herbert was was Curly's inspiration for a lot of what he did. So I got to learn a lot, and I and I ended up knowing Joan, his daughter, and uh, Norm Mauer, who was his son-in-law, and I and I have known him for many. You know, Joan's still around, and known them for many years. You walked among giants, my friend. Oh, it, it was for a seventeen-year-old kid. It was like it was a dream to to really to just stay with Mo Howard and learn about the, that and. They had incredible memorabilia that I saw and, and I learned. I love that he call, went and, and called a post-stroke Larry Fine a nincompoop. <laughs> he was at least he didn't put his head in a letterpress. I thought he was gonna, uh, he was in a wheelchair. I thought he was going to actually hit him, and I was waiting right, for turn, it. I was, was going to turn a flamethrower <laughs> on the back of his head. Right. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. What uh, and I will will uh, I want to ask you about some of the other legends and icons you have crossed paths with? But uh, what is this about Dean saving Jerry's life from Albert Anast- uh, saving him from Albert Anastasia? Uh, hey, Albert Anast- better known for Mur- Murder Incorporated. Well, Jerry Jerry was had always a lot of problems. I don't know the exact story about Albert Anastasia, but I knew that Jerry had a secretary, and uh, she was the same person. Um, I, I, that was uh, Sam Giancana's girlfriend, uh, Judy. Uh, um, uh, uh, not not Judith Exner. Judy Exner, Judith Exner Campbell, wh- who was also with JFK. Was with JFK, and right. Judith, Judith Campbell Exner was Jerry's secretary at Paramount, and Jerry, as per Jerry, was sticking his hands down her pants, and she said, "Stop, stop, stop," and Jerry would not stop. So she went back and told Momo, and the next day they, these guys came to Jerry's office at Paramount and put him up against the wall, started oh. shaking him, started really at Jerry's head. With, and Jerry never went near Judith Campbell Exner again, as it, it, ever. But he had done this um, 
there was a, there's a, a good friend of mine, Karen Kramer, uh, who's named Karen Sharp, who had actually appeared with Abbott Costello on her, the TV show. She was Stanley Kramer's. She's just she was Stanley Kramer's widow. She's still out there and great. And, oh, and wow. she said she worked with Jerry Lewis in a film, and Jerry would just never stop sticking his hands down her pants. And Jeez. because she would cooperate, he would work her extra overtime. He would do everything to torture her. What a guy, Jerry. Wow. <laughs> Shade, shades of Guy Marks and Abby Dalton, by the yes. way. <laughs> uh, getting and, back... Go ahead, Jill. I, I heard that... You know, there was that famous story that uh, when Gene, when Dean and Jerry split up, they didn't speak for another twenty years, and I heard they they did speak. They they actually appeared together different times. In fact, Jerry did a Dean Martin uh, one of his shows because Jerry was shooting at NBC his variety show, and well, when I know Greg Garrison cut that out of the uh, episode. So they had, they, had, they had spoke over the years. See, hey, we heard we heard that, Gil. Yeah, see, that's what gets me. It's like if you had the Dean Martin show with a guest appearance by Jerry Lewis, that would be bigger than the Beatles reunion. So why would he have? Uh, he had, maybe at Dean's request. He had he had he had a he had a great producer, Jerry, named Bob Finkel, and Bob had produced like half of. You know, Dinah Shore show and the Eddie Fisher show and then Andy Williams and Circus of the Stars and People's Choice. And Jerry came to him in 67 and said, I have a new show at NBC. I want you to produce it. And Bob said, no, no, Jerry, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Because Bob had produced him on the Colgate Comedy Hour with, with Dean. And Jerry said, I promise you I will behave myself. And this was in Las Vegas. And Bob said, no, 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 no. Jerry said, here. And he took a he took a, a tube of lipstick in his dressing room, and backwards he wrote "I will behave, Jerry Lewis." And then he took a Polaroid because it was shot backwards and gave it to 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 Bob. He said, "Here, here's your contract." Jeez, how about that? Now that now he wasn't a producer on Jerry's ill-fated late-night talk show where they gave him the theater, the the the, the, no. the, the Jerry that, Lewis that, Theater that on Hollywood like, Boulevard. That was like a three-hour non-scripted show. Yeah. I think Dick Cavett was a writer Dick, on that. Dick show. Cavett was a writer. Perry Cross was one of the producers of the show. Perry yeah. Perry had left uh, the Tonight Show, and they they built this mammoth. The, eventually, the Hollywood Palace. They built this incredible theater to Jerry's, and it was different levels. And, you know, and Jerry was not meant to be. Jerry had done good on The Tonight Show in, in short times, but Jerry was not great at something like that because it had to be, Jerry had to be the center of attention. Here's another question, which I think we answered. Kevin McDonough said, uh, I've written that most of the live shows, uh, Rat Pack shows, were scripted by Joey Bishop down to the last detail. We now know that is not true. No. <laughs> it was although Joey Joey would have liked people to believe that. Andrew Laposha says most of the members of the Rat Pack I heard were considered for the Jerry Lewis role in the King of Comedy. I don't know anything about that. No, Do I you? no no no. The only the only for, for in, I think Car, Carson was considered. Yeah, no, I, I Jerry did a great job for for the King of Comedy. It was a perfect part for him. It really was great, and Gilbert and I introduced that movie down at the film forum. Uh, Gregory Ward, of all the biopics or impersonations of the various Rat Packers, 
Which actor or, imp- or impressionist came the closest to their subject? Question for both of you, in your opinions. Would we say Sammy Petrillo's impersonation of Jerry? Hold on. Jerry, Jerry wasn't in the Rat Pack. That's a cheat. The, the guru- Mantegna did a good job. We'll say our friend, our mutual friend, Joe Mantegna, did a good job with Dean. Joe, yes. Joe, Joe kind of uh, had Dean's essence, and, and Dina Martin yeah, loves and him. Had, and he's, and, yes. and Joe's, Joe's just such a, such a great guy. He's a mensch. He is. And, we, love, okay. we, we love Joe. This is absolutely true. I'm not making this up as a joke. I was looking up on the book about Frank and Dean, and then, as anyone who knows me, what fascinates me, I I typed in Frank Sinatra, Jews, <laughs> and, to, to, and you 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 you've been you've been using Jugal again, the Jugal yeah, word yes, search. Yes, yes, and and according to this, now you can't trust. Uh, what the internet tells you. According to this, uh, Frank Sinatra liked the Jews. <laughs> he probably did. I mean, as far as I know, he liked, you know, worked with a lot of Jews. You know, He liked Jewish mobsters. He liked yes. Mo, Mo Dalitz and Carl Cohn and uh, and Billy Weinberger and, and, and the such. Now, you got to interview the legendary, infamous Mo Dalitz. Mo Dalitz, how do you approach a guy like that for an interview? I did approach him. I, I knew him from Cleveland. Uh, I had we had a family member named Max, my uh, man named Max Diamond, who was infamous in Cleveland and put the Teamsters in Las Vegas. Uh, I had uh, no idea you were so mobbed up, Rick. I wasn't mobbed up, but <laughs> you know we were a Jew family, and you have to please deal. don't hurt us. Yeah, you know part of my family business we had to work with guys who were in the business, and these and these were Jewish mobsters. So um, th- these were guys who really were business oriented, and they went to Las they went to Las Vegas, and it was guys like Mo Dalitz, Mickey Cohn came from Cleveland, uh, Maxie Diamond who brought. Bill Presser and Jackie Presser and the Teamster Money to Las Vegas, Carl mm-hmm. Cohn. Um, so I got to know a lot of these guys, and Mo Dalitz was one of them. So um, I approached Carl Cohn, uh, Mo Dalitz, uh, in Las Vegas, and I said, could I have a sit-down? And I didn't know where it would lead her eventually, but he told me that the crea- he, he gave me the inclination of how the Rat Pack was created. You know, Mo created uh, Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas. He was part of the convention center. He, he really was part of the history of building Las Vegas, and he was a visionary, as, as a lot of these guys were. You know, Benny, I, you know, I didn't know Benny Siegel, but Benny Siegel, you know, was a visionary with the Flamingo Hotel. Bugsy, yeah. Yeah, a visionary, and look what it got him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> look, how he en- look how he ended up. Gilbert, you could have been a Jewish mobster. One, just <laughs> one, one, one little turn in life different. <laughs> You know, and I I saw a clip. I saw a clip of Dean and Jerry where Jerry surprises him in Vegas and he wheels out a cake for Dean Martin's birthday. And then Jerry Lewis says, so why did we split up? And Dean Martin says, well, we we split up because I'm a Jew and you're a Dago. <laughs> you know, we all, we all read Nick Tosh's book, uh, Rick, and, and, and he claims, and it's, it's an interesting read, yeah. 
in a lot of in a lot of ways. Yes. But uh, uh, he claims that that Dean didn't admire uh, uh, Sinatra. That that really it was the other way around. Dean, yeah, he I. I heard that when Sinatra saw Martin and Lewis, he said, uh, the Dago's lousy, the little Jew is great. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you had to admire Dean because Dean went his own way. Dean, Dean didn't follow yeah. Frank. You know, when Frank said you'd be at the inaugural, Dean wasn't there. Dean didn't care. It wasn't went home, yeah. When, when the Dean didn't want to play in, in the late 80s when he was doing the reunion tour, when Dean was done, Dean was done. He didn't care what Frank said. It was it was over. Dean Dean, you know, did did what he wanted. Uh, you know, Dean Martin told me this great story. Dean Martin was uh, having a party at his house, and uh, and Jeannie Jeannie's having this big party. It's eight o'clock. Dean goes up to his room, changes into his pajamas, and he loved to watch westerns. And he turned a western on. So at about nine thirty, this party's still going on like crazy. Dean calls the Beverly Hills police and reports the party and gets it raided. I mean, that's D. Martin. <laughs> it's a, his own family. His own family. Oh, <laughs> Hilarious story. Uh, you know, we were we should say that we were going to have Dina on this show. We put it up on uh, on Patreon, and, and Dina was having technical uh, difficulties, and she wasn't in the studio, and there was a, a mic issue and a head. But well, we're going to try to have Dina and and uh, and one of the Sinatra daughters next year. They're one, wonderful, a, wonderful. They're wonder, yeah. And we'll do a we'll do a Frank uh, we'll do a Frank Dean episode. But 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 Rat Pack aside, we got to ask you about some of these other wonderful people. By the way, reading about Joey's talk show and Joey's sitcom, uh, it's interesting to read how many other comics dislike Joey too. Like Shecky, Shecky has nothing nice to say about him or, or Gilbert. <laughs> Buddy Hackett has nothing nice to say about Joey. And you knew, and you, I, I assume you interviewed both men. I interviewed both men. Uh, Jack Carter hated him. You know, Jack, Jack Carter hated everybody. Jack, Jack Carter hated everybody, yeah. Uh, you know, Jan, Jan Murray liked him, I think. Um, Jan Murray was a sweet man. Jan Murray was a nice man. His, his son Howard's a great guy. Um, yes, I, we know Howard on Facebook. And, uh, you know, there were there were a lot of comics who just did not like... Joey was part of that Beverly Hills uh, Jewish comic that they moved out from Inglewood and from, from New York, and so he was part of that enclave of a lot of of Jewish yeah, comics, Hackett too. yeah, but, the house in yeah, Jersey. Buddy Hackett and and Sandy yeah. Sandy Hackett tells great stories about it, and, we had and, Sandy, San, and Sandy was very close to uh, to Joey even in the end, you know. So um, right, right, uh, he does the Rat Pack show, yeah, Sandy. And he plays Joey, yeah. he plays Joey, um, and so um, you know Joey Joey burns so many bridges. When we talk about the Joey Bishop show, I got to talk to Abby Dalton, and she had never gone on record about. The Joy, Just Joy lost Bishop her. show a couple of weeks ago, and she, she, her daughter was Kathleen Kinman was nice enough to put that she had worked on the book as her last project. Um, and I asked Abby all these questions. First, she didn't like Joe Besser, which was I, I was shocked. She, <laughs> she said she called him a dumpling. She said he was a nice, fat little dumpling, but <laughs> she, she goes, he had a one note thing, you know, you know, don't. Touch me. No, yeah, yeah. That she said it was the same thing every show, and there was no right. variation. And she goes, <laughs> "He's always stinky." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, was, he just didn't dress in his little Lord Fauntleroy outfit, but uh, right, you know, right. And and Mary Treen was the same. 
So, you know, he never surrounded himself with people. He had he had Guy Marks, who was, you know, an okay comic. He did a great imitation. But Guy, right. Guy Marks was... No, a good bogey. Guy Marks was good for, known for two things. He was known to be a little bit like Milton Berle in, in certain areas. Uh-huh. Yes. And, okay. Yes, yes and, we know that. And Guy Marks was known to be the biggest uh, piece of shit when it came to working on sets. And he did it. In different shows, that and he burned a he burned a lot of bridges. So right. when Abby was working on the show, guy was trying to stick his hands down her pants before she hit the set. He was grabbing her, and she, and Abby, who was married, and in fact was pregnant, went to Sheldon Leonard and and Danny Thomas, and you know they fired guy right away. And then all the rumors became that Joey was jealous of guy's talent, and that's why he got fired. But it was. Abby right. Dalton who did it, and right. Abby, so Abby was told it was for a change. Joey wasn't threatened by somebody's talent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever watched the show, Abby was the the concept of the show is they wanted the second concept was they wanted to turn Abby Dalton into Mary Tyler Moore. So they yeah. so Abby said they sent her over to the set of Dick Van Dyke and Persky and Denoff took her over, and so she's watching the show and she's supposed to take notes and and bring it to her part as Joey's wife. So she comes back over, and Sheldon goes, what did you get out of that? She goes, first place, I can't be Mary Tyler Moore because she plays against Dick Van Dyke, who could sing, who could dance, who can act, who has charisma. I've got the old stone-faced Joey Bishop. (laughs) (laughs) The frown prince of comedy. the, the, The frown prince. And so Abby said her words were, yes, dear, no, dear. And then she had a, she had a smile at Joe Besser. She said that was her last thing. Yeah, they didn't write her anything. She was uh, unfortunately that was another, that wasn't much of a part. No, and she had well, she had she had, smile she had been Joe nominated Besser. for the Emmy Award for Hennessy with Jackie Cooper before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just we just lost her, and we just lost uh, Milty's nephew uh, Warren Berlinger, who also had no oh. love whatsoever for <laughs> Joey Bishop. And is it and. Well, leave something to the book. People have to get the book well, to hear these, I'll, to read these wonderful stories. I'll, I'll tell you quickly that Warren Berlinger and Marlo Thomas, who played Joey's sister in the first version, yeah, it wasn't nice to Marlo he, either. No, he was. He had words about Marlo. They had a uh, a dartboard in their dressing room where they threw it at Joey's head. So uh, you know, Warren was Warren and Marlo were not fans of Joey, as, as were as were very few people. Can Not- you see my Gilbert dartboard if I tilt the, the, the computer screen a little bit? Uh, now, uh, go um, ahead, Gil. I uh, now I heard Mo actually was smart with his money. Mo Mo was Mo, Mo Howard or Mo Dalitz? <laughs> uh, no, Mo Howard. <laughs> okay. Mo Mo lived in a beautiful home in North Hollywood. He had lived in Toluca Lake before that. He he was the only one. Larry was a compulsive. Well, Larry was at the track. Twenty four seven. He had a lot of girlfriends. He was a, he was a big partier, Larry. Uh, Curly was uh, Joan told me was a savant. He really had no reality in life. He just he he just never. He was not a normal. He was great in comedy, but he just not was a, was not a normal person. Shemp um, did okay. His son had gas stations, but Mo was the most successful and invested well and. Uh, Ended up owning a lot of the properties. Uh, the problem was, in the, in the end, it was Joe Dorita who ended up with control of the three. His family, that, of the three studios. That to me is insane. 
Because Joe Dorita was like, oh, we need the, well, this guy's bald and fat. So we'll uh, hire him. I'll tell a quick Joe Dorita story. I went to Joe Dorita's house. Joe lived in North Hollywood. And I was greeted by Joe Dorita in his underwear with his sack of balls hanging out from his underwear. Ouch. Swear to God. <laughs> Weary, tidy whities. And I went back and he sat in his chair in this recliner with the, everything hanging out and watching him, watching Joe Dorita. And I'm going, please, I want to leave. I don't want to stay. <laughs> That's a beautiful tale, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about some of these other legendary characters, and we could talk to you about the Rat Pack and the Stooges and these people till the end of time. But tell us about some of the wonderful people whose names have appeared on this show. Uh, well, Jack Carter, you said, never had a nice thing to say about anybody. No. What was your experience with Jack Carter? Jack was, you know, it, everything, you know, Jack was, at that the time I met him, was very angry that they had cut him off of the episode of, he was supposed to be the father on the King of Queens. And they had actually shot the pilot episode with Jack Carter. But when Jerry Stiller became available, out went Jack Carter. And, you know, this was Jack's, you know, reclaim to fame that he was going to come back. So Jack grumbled about that for about uh, an hour. He didn't like anybody. No. We heard Jack Carter. We, we had him booked here and he passed away, I told you. What about Hackett? What was your experience of Buddy? Love Buddy Hackett, one of the funniest guys. Um, just... You know, I, I met him with Hugh O'Brien one time for lunch, who was one of his good friends. Um, sure, they were in Fireman Save My Child. But they they remain great friends, and uh, Buddy was such a great guy. Um, Sandy Hackett has a great story, if you ask him about uh, Mo Daylitz with Buddy Hackett. Um, I think we I think he might have told us that story. Did Buddy didn't pull his piece out on you? <laughs> no, never pulled his piece. <laughs> Nothing, but Buddy was, Buddy was always, when I met him, he was always really... One of the funniest guys. Smart guy. Very sharp guy. What about Pat McCormick? Love Pat. Who, who had something to do with the Bishop show? Pat McCormick did. He was the guy who destroyed the Bishop show, according to the writers. They had hired him, and they had hired Jack Riley. Jack to, to Riley. Write, to write for who, the show. Gil, who Gilbert worked with. Right, Gil? Yes, I worked with him on The Tonight Show. They used to hire him to be that killer well, that, that cult leader. The cult leader, yeah the, yeah. yeah, the doomsday cult. Well, Jack Jack and Pat McCormick were from Cleveland, and, and uh, Pat was... Right. You never knew what Pat was going to do. Uh, and he was a writer on the Joy Bishop talk show, and he, he made changes, and the changes ended up with Joey out the door. Did you spend a lot of time with Pat McCormick, or a little bit of time? Would he come to those lunches? He would come to those lunches, but he, he went to... He had a group called the Army's Army, and, sure. Uh, Did I, you go to any of those? I had gone, I'd gone with the, the group of Yarmy's Army, which was Don uh, Adams' brother, and uh, so he had a lot, a, lot, a lot of group of Cleveland ex Clevelanders. You know, were part of it. Jack Riley and, and Pat McCormick, and uh, uh, right. Uh, there was a, a Gary Owens was Did there. Did you meet at times. Bill Dana? Oh, I, who? Bill Bill Dana was one of the great guys. Lovely man. Uh, he set up this great interview at Emerson University. That later became the archive of television, and Bill, Bill, who was, uh, you know, people think of him as Jose Jimenez, as a Jewish guy from Boston, who was yep. absolutely one of the most brilliant writer, performer, really could do it all, and wrote for Steve Allen for a long time. 
And we tried so hard to get there, I Dana know, here. and finally he agreed, and I spoke to him on the phone, and I remember thinking, oh, this guy's going to be great on oh, the show. Oh, he's great. Bill, Bill, was one no. of, Bill was one of the funny, and he had great stories. And he was a good friend of Don Adams as well, and and his brother sure. wrote the uh, theme song for uh, Get Smart. His, br- his brother oh. Irving. Correct. What was the story about Don Adams stealing a bit from Bob Newhart? Uh, I got a chance to interview Bob for uh, a book Bob Finkel I was working with, and Bob told the story. I can't, can't believe how many people were slandering in this episode. Bob, Bob, <laughs> Bob, worked, Bob, Bob worked as a, uh, he worked at, he first as an, in the unemployment bureau, and, and then he eventually worked in radio in Chicago. Didn't do a lot of live performances, and he had a skit he did, which was an air traffic controller. And he had, and Bill, actually Bill Daly was working at that same station. Um, and Bob read this this routine, and Don Adams was there, heard the routine, took that same routine and did it on, it was either Ed Sullivan or some uh, variety show he appeared on, maybe even The Tonight Show, and it was word for word. And and Bob said, if someone's going to do my stuff, it's going to be me, and that's pushed Bob really more into performing. Wow. So he turned a negative into into something very positive. Yeah, absolutely. What's what's the crazy story? And I promised Gilbert because let's 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 get to what the listeners of this podcast really tune in for, and that's big penis stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you told me a story, a crazy story that involves uh, the chairman of the board. Let me see if I have this right. Uncle Milty and Hans Hall. I'm trying to. And Hans Hall, <laughs> forgive me. Ah, I yes. Went, I went. I went blank. We we opened with Louis Dombrowski, so we'll bring it full circle. What the hell is this crazy story? Mickey Rooney had a manager. His name was Maurice Duke, Mo Duke, and Mo Duke was a harmonica player who became this super agent. He was four foot ten. He had two. Uh, he had polio, so he had two uh, uh, crutches that he would walk with with you know, on his arm. And he became, he was, everybody loved him. Frank loved him. Everybody loved him. He, and he really brought Mickey back to fame. One of the guys he managed was Hunts Hall. And Hunts was appearing with Gabe Dell. This is about 51, 52. And they were in New York doing an act in, in New York. And Hunts wanted to go on, on Uncle Milty's show. And every time Mo Duke would approach Milton Burley, he goes, no, no, he can't remember his lines. He doesn't know what he, you know, I, I don't trust him. He's, he's undependable. And he could find. He finally found out that Milton didn't want him on the show because Hunts was rumored to have a bigger dick than Milton Burrow. So, so <laughs> Mo, Mo Duke, and this is from Mo Duke and his, his daughter, his daughter Freddie Duke, who who made a documentary about her father called "Fucked Up," and it's out there. Uh, okay, we'll find Mo, it. Du, Mo Duke hatched a plan in New York. Frank was there, and he was staying at the Essex house. He went to see Frank at Danny's hideaway, and he told Frank the story, and Frank was in stitches. Frank said, really? He goes, no, 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 he, he won't do it. He goes, come to a party tonight. Milt will be there, and I'll, I'll take care of the rest. So they came to this party, and, and, and it was it was evening wear, hoi polloi of New York. Moss Hart, Kitty Carlisle, George Kaufman, all the all the... <laughs> Playwrights and everybody from that era. I think Cole Porter was there. So they're uh-huh. all they're all at this party, and watch. And, and all of a sudden, here comes Mo Duke with his crutches and Hunts Hall. You know, you know Hunts and Hunts and Kitty Carlisle is just a great image. 
So yeah. So Hunts Hall comes in and so Mo Duke, Frank said, I heard Mill the story that you won't hire Hunts Hall because Hunts has a bigger cock than you have. And and Milt goes, No, 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 no. We we have other things and he doesn't, you know and he goes, If if it's if he, if he does, would you would you confer would you do a bet with us that Hunts appears in your show if he does? And Milt Milt was not afraid of anybody but except he was always in fear of Frank. He always like was in awe of Frank and he wouldn't say no. So they dropped their shorts and <laughs> Mo Duke. They couldn't even go into the men's room to do they this. They did this in front of everybody at the party at the es- at Frank's suite at the Essex. Oh, it was at the Essex house, and in front of everybody at the party. And there's Kitty Carlisle and Boss Hart, and everybody looking on. Mo Duke pulls out a cane, his cane, measures Milt, then he measures Hunts Hall. He marks it off with magic marker, and at the end, Hunts Hall wins. Milt screams. It's not fair. It's not fair. You measured him from the. You measured me from my anus to the end of my ball, and you gave him a, a, an easier measuring. And, <laughs> and, and in the end, Hunts Hall did appear on the 1952 Milton Berle show. Oh God, jeez. So, so at no point did Cole Porter and George S. Kaufman measure. Yeah, I heard George <laughs> couldn't measure, but. <laughs> The guy measured it with his cane, Gilbert. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's plug your books, Rick. This is cra- this is an hour and a half of craziness. I think, Gilbert, we've slandered more people on this show than in any previous episode. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we. I think you broke the record. I think you broke Cliff Nesteroff's record. Now, who gets the liability for this? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you. T- you know, the Rooney book from Simon & Schuster was a New York Times bestseller. We could do, an, I mean, the, sto- the Rooney stories, we could do an hour and a half with you just on Rooney stories. But uh, the Jerry Lewis book is coming. When can we expect that? It's going to be out next summer, uh, and uh, it's going to be comprehensive. It's called The Clown That Cried. And it's going to be clown that it's going to be good, bad. I mean, we have interviews with Steven Spielberg and with, with Martin Scott. People love him. Leonard Malton absolutely adores him. And there's people. Mm-hmm. Leonard will never talk to us again after this. <laughs> and there's people who, who uh, claim that Jerry's, you know, like Bill Richmond's wife, uh, claims that Jerry mm-hmm. stole everything he did. Yeah, Gilbert. By the way, the the uh, the penis jealousy is the reason you not you never got to work with Tom Jones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything old is new again. Well, I think I can use some of this episode, Rick. <laughs> And now, Rick. <laughs> Rick, I think the one we could definitely use is Jerry Lewis was a homo, and he was coming on to Dean Martin. <laughs> and almost killed by Momo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just write a book? You, you must be tempted just to write a book about your mob. Uh, uh, your mob knowledge and your mob relationships and all of these great, wonderful characters that you that you interviewed. They they were they were fascinating, especially the minds that that really created Las Vegas. When when you talked to them, they had a real vision, and they were some great marketing geniuses uh, that yeah. really put Vegas on the map. And really, it was it was the Rat Pack who put them on the map in 1960. 
but also psychotic. I mean, Gilbert, we've had a lot of guests who worked for the mob, like Tony Sandler, people who worked in Vegas who were sort of nostalgic yes. about about working in the old Vegas under mob rule. But I'm, I'm maybe 30, 40 pages into your book, and Shecky is saying, yeah, but these people were psychotic. You'd look at them the wrong way, and, and they'd, they'd beat you to a pulp. Frank, it, or, and there's that crazy story about that, what, the... Uh, Greenbaum or Greenstein, the, Gus, the, the guy who... Gus Greenbaum, who Mickey... Gus Greenbaum Mi and his Mickey, wife. Mickey Rooney, because he didn't show up and, did, and and owed money, Gus Greenbaum was blamed to Mickey Rooney. His wife, him and his wife, their heads were cut off and put in a trunk. And oh. and it was... And oh. Many blame that. And that's in our Mickey Rooney book. Many blame that to, yeah. to Mickey. Yeah. Or, or or what happened to Joey Lewis, Gilbert? Which, you know, oh my God! Where they like you know, cut his tongue? They went so yeah. deep cutting his throat that they practically it, cut his yeah. tongue off. Yeah, not so, not so, uh, not so nostalgic. No, I mean, N not not so warm and fuzzy. No, but it's it's a it's a weird mix in in Las Vegas and how it was created. Yeah, you got to do a book just about Vegas. I mean, you you probably got 10, 20 more books in you just from the people you've interviewed. I, I, it's it's the the fun part of doing a book is the research and and interviewing and talking to people. I love the old character actors. I got a chance to interview a lot of character actors, and, and uh, I even interviewed Chris McIntyre, who was from the Three Stooges. Uh, wow! And 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 Sid Sid Fields. I got to yes. you interviewed Sid Fields. I interviewed. I went. You buried the lead. I I <laughs> I, I interviewed Sid at the Silver Slipper with Hank Henry. And I got to meet, and I, it was really, I really wanted to meet Sid Fields because I love the original Abbott and Costello show. And Sid Fields, you know, told how he used to write. Uh, he wrote He wrote with Lenny Stern, Leonard Stern. Uh, the great Leonard Stern. On the radio yeah. show. Uh, and he, then he wrote later wrote uh, at Universal, too, with uh, for Abbott and Costello. With Leonard Stern. What a guest Leonard Stern would have been on this show. Oh, oh what a, Be better known as the creator of Get Smart. And, and the, uh, we want to thank our and the honeymooners, and, and, and the honeymooners with Marvin Marks. We want to thank uh, we want to thank our pal Jeff Abraham for setting this up. We we love these stories. We can't get enough of them. Oh, I appreciate it. Jeff Jeff's such a great guy, and I appreciate Jeff's help. Oh, Jeff's wonderful, and Jeff Jeff and Bert's book was a scream. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Gil. Yes. We're going to I'm going to call my attorney. <laughs> well, I don't it, know what you're going to do. Uh, um well, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the guy who says Jerry Lewis was a big homo, and that's why Dean Martin didn't want to be around him in sharing the same dressing room. Rick Lertzman. Rick, Rick, he said, Rick, Rick said a Lertzman. lot of things. Rick, Rick, Rick said a lot of things tonight. I'll, I'll end with this. The writers interviewed for the book referred to Joey Bishop as th uh, three, three things, generally speaking. Uh, prick, asshole, and son of a bitch. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I am going to poor Joey. Well, poor Joey. He was a poor Joey. He was a son of a gun. Son of a gun, Rick. Th Rick, this was a blast, and we'll get a we'll get a lot of feedback on this one. And so, everybody, get the get the book. Uh, 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 tell us again the title, De uh, Rick, because I don't have your intro in it's front of me. Deconstructing the Rat Pack: Joey, the Mob, and the Summit. 
and uh, it's uh, it's available on Amazon and on uh, Barnes and Noble. Anywhere you can get books. It's in Kindle or Anywhere book. books are still sold. Yes. And if you're a fan of this podcast, Gilbert, yes. this this is this is a this is the book to read. And if yeah. you're a fan of mob stories or stories of old Vegas or or sitcoms or the nightclub era, uh, just just a, a absolute page turner and we can't wait for the Jerry book and come back and slander some more people. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going into hiding until then. Yes. <laughs> you going to the mattresses? Yeah. <laughs> this was a blast. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank Gilbert. Thank happy you for, New Year. Thank you, happy, Frank. Happy Happy Holidays. Happy Happy Holidays. A troop of strolling players are we? Not stars like L.B. Mayers are we? But just a simple band who roams about the land. Dispensing folder of frivolity Mere folk who give distraction are we New theater give attraction are we Oh shut up Sam But just a crazy group That never ceases to troop Around the map of little Italy Well here we go back to the home country again We open in Venice We next play Verona then on to Cremona Lots of laughs in Cremona Hey boy Our next jump in Parma That dopey mopey menace Then Mantua Then Padua Then we open again Where? We open in Venice We next play Verona Then on to Cremona Lots of bars in Cremona Our next jump in Parma That fearless cheerless menace Then Mantua Then Padua Then we open again we open in Venice, we next play Verona, then on to Cremona. Lots of money in Cremona. Our next jump in Parma, that dingy, smingy menace, then Mantua, then Padua. And we open again, where? We open in Venice, we next play Verona, then on to Cremona. Lots of quail in Cremona. Ha! Our next jump in Parma. That heartless, heartless menace. Then Mantua, then Padua. Then we open again. Where? Oh. Well, let me see now. I got a map. Let's pick out someplace. Yeah, well, just don't take it too far down the line there. Oh, well, let's take the first canyon out of here. Matter of fact, if we hurry, we can beat the tab. Of course, yeah. the sheriff's out there waiting for us. Get, Goodbye, get, boys. Get out, get out, get out, get out.